0: Alright, we're going to have Bibles coming down the aisles, and so if you, uh, if you need a Bible to follow along with Pastor Jim, go ahead and do that. And so we'll have them come down, passing out Bibles, raise your hand, don't feel weird about this, we want you to be able to follow along, okay? Let me introduce you Pastor Jim. Pastor Jim Mullins, come on up here. He is the pastor of, of something good, I don't know his official title, down in Redemption Tempe. Um, how many people, are there anyone here from Redemption Tempe right now? Yeah, so uh, you're probably disappointed right? They're like, we came all the way up here to see you, Vince. Uh, and now Jim again, right? Uh, but no, Jim is an incredible friend of mine. And here's what's interesting. We, um, we, we saw that this in our, in our preaching calendar was an open Sunday for us. We're the opportunity to preach on anything we wanted to preach on. And, and, I had some ideas personally what that would look like, but the more I thought about it, I was like, man, it would be incredible on Labor Day weekend, on a weekend where we celebrate labor and work, to allow who I think is the guru of vocational ministry, or that's not right, the guru of how to do uh, work well, right, how to do this idea that God loves all vocations equally and use them all equally in the redemption of the world what we talked about last week in our all of life interview so um, jim has formed our church significantly if you've learned anything about gospel and vocation he's been a huge part of it and so again we thought on labor day weekend as much as i hate giving up the pulpit especially in early september uh man jim is here to bring the word for us let me pray for him and then he'll get started god thank you for this guy Thanks for the friendship. Thanks for all that you're doing down in Tempe. We pray your blessings over him today as he brings the word of God. Holy Spirit, move, change us, and make us more like Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys should clap or something so it's not weird. <laughs> well,
1: it's good to be with you, Redemption Flagstaff. Um, you should know a few things. Before we get started today one is that we at Redemption Tempe have tremendous affection for you as Redemption Flagstaff we think about you and pray for you often and in all seriousness I often wake up in the middle of the night and pray for Northern Arizona and for Flagstaff so it's cool to see the fruit of those prayers here in this room. The other thing you should know that while we are talking about work on Labor Day and that's very appropriate it wasn't until I was like 20 years old that I realized that Labor Day wasn't about just celebrating women who give birth to children and those sorts of things. So, so I'm, a, I'm a bit of a knucklehead and I don't know too much, but I figured out that Labor Day has something to do with work. So today we're going to talk about work. In particular, I'm going to give you a theology of work primarily rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. This topic is one of my favorite topics and one of the topics i believe is so important for the church to grasp for us to fully engage in god's mission to glorify him to love our neighbors and so when i sat down to prepare this message i'm not kidding you i came up with about 22 points that i wanted to make today but I'm going to be merciful and I'm going to leave you with three, so I'm not going to do what Vince did last week and hit you with 10 to 20 points, but three points, but before we get into to what those points are and what Genesis 1 and 2 has to say about our work in the world, I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine. See, I lived in Turkey. I lived in Turkey for three years, and while I was in Turkey, I had the opportunity to work as a basketball scout for the Turkish Basketball League. Do we have any uh, basketball fans in the room? All right, cool. All eight of you will know what this illustration's about. The others might not, but it's for you. In Turkey, the Turkish Basketball League is like a step below the NBA. So the 12th or 13th player on any given NBA team is about two years away from going and playing in Turkey and uh, living their life there. Now, it's not a bad existence. You, get, you can get paid millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars to play, and it's a very competitive level. Allen Iverson has played there, and Dominique Wilkins, and all these guys, when they get old, they go play in Turkey. Well, I somehow worked myself into getting a role as a basketball scout. I was there to um, proclaim the gospel, but was doing some business as mission. And um, I would often meet people who had just become believers or have an opportunity to be a part of somebody coming to know Christ in Turkey as a basketball player. And there was one guy in particular who wrestled deeply. His name was Joe Joe was born to play basketball. His grandpa was a famous coach in New Jersey. His dad was a famous coach in New Jersey. His uncle was a famous coach in New Jersey. And he and his brother broke almost every record in New Jersey high school basketball. He was six foot nothing. He wasn't very fast. He wasn't very strong. But he had mastered the craft of shooting a basketball. He was 90% free throw shooter, could hit three pointers like you wouldn't believe. And it was fun to watch him play. There was one game that I saw, it was an elimination game in the playoffs. If they won the game, his little team from this obscure small little town would beat the big city team with all the money and they would advance to the next round of the playoffs and he played incredible. He, he scored 30-something points, he dominated the game, and it got down to the last seven seconds. His team was down by three points, and everyone knew that the ball was going to him. They inbounded it to him. He started dribbling up the court, they double team him. One guy's six foot seven and foam coming out of his mouth. They were trying to shut him down. He dribbles to the right, He crosses over to the left, five, four, three, two. He leans in, gets a little distance, and from about 40 feet away, shoots a three-pointer that felt like the ball was in the air for about 90 seconds, and then nothing but net. They win the game. Everybody's fired up. They rush the court. They're going to the next round of the playoffs. Now, here's the thing. After the excitement wanes, this was a very thoughtful guy. And he was wrestling deeply with questions of why does my work matter? I'm just playing a game of basketball. Should I quit being a basketball player and really follow Jesus and go be a pastor or a missionary or start a nonprofit? Why does this game of taking this little rubber ball and bouncing it up and down and throwing it through a little net, why does it matter? And if we're honest, many of us have that question in our mind as well when we engage in our work. We're asking, why does my work as an insurance salesman matter? Why does my work as a janitor matter? Why does my work as an IT manager matter? And it is so important that we answer this question for this very reason. 90,000 hours of our lives will be spent working. Not leading Bible studies, although those are really good. Not, not praying or reading your Bible or singing worship songs. Those are all very important parts of life, but you're going to spend 90,000 hours doing something else. So that's the question I want to answer today as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, the question of why does work matter? Now, there are several potential ways that you could answer that question that would be incomplete or wrong. It would come from a wrong worldview or an incomplete worldview. And let me give you some of those. Some might say, work matters. Well, not all work matters, but fulfilling work matters. That the aim of life is to go get a job that makes you happy and uses your gifts and abilities and has a lot, where you're having the most fun. And we often tend to bounce from job to job to job looking for that one fulfilling job. And it's good that we put our gifts and abilities to use, and it's good to find satisfaction in our work, but that isn't the whole story. Another reason people might give is they say, look, it pays the bills. They send me a paycheck when I'm done working. That's why I work. Forget all your theology of work mumbo jumbo. I need money at the end of the month so that I can go like buy stuff at REI and go hike mountains and those sorts of things. And it is true that you, it is right for us to work so that we can get paid and that God uses our work to provide for us and our families and provision is very important, but that's not the whole story either. Other people might say sacred work matters, that there's a particular type of work The work of a pastor, the work of a missionary, the work of someone who starts a nonprofit that has like a really good hashtag, like end poverty now or something like that. That work matters. And the rest of us, we just do work to financially support them because we're not quite spiritual enough to be at that level. And that does not reflect the biblical story as well. It reflects a truncated version and then some might say, work matters because it's an opportunity for evangelism. It's an opportunity for me to share my faith, and it puts me in contact with others. And that's, that's good, that's not bad, but your work will never be an opportunity to announce the good news, an opportunity for eva- evangelism, until it's more than an opportunity until there is a deeper reason that you have a deep understanding of your work and how it fits into God's story and why it matters to God so that you do such excellent work that people say, there's something unique about you that I want to hear about. So why does work matter? I'm going to make three points today. The first is that God is a productive worker, the second is that we were created to work. And the third is that we are called to work. Now, as much as I would like to go Genesis to Revelation, I'm just going to stick in Genesis 1 and 2. And there are going to be some things left out here today. But these, I think, are the, the three things that we need to get that are foundational for the rest of a the theology of work. So go ahead now, if you, if you have your Bibles, and open up to Genesis chapter 1. When we look at Genesis 1, as you're opening the, the, your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, you're probably wondering, what, wh- where am I going to go with this? Because a lot of times, what people do with Genesis 1 in particular is they think that Genesis 1 is... is is mainly made for, you know, Bill Nye and Ken Ham and for their various debates on how long and creation was six days or evolution or those sorts of things. And whatever you think about that, here's something that's very clear. Genesis 1 and 2 is not about that. Genesis 1 and 2 is this polemic poem that talks about the purpose, the nature, and the creation of the world, and it is specific in the way that it challenges the idolatrous narrative stories, creation stories of that day. Like the Enuma Elish or the the Canaanite and and, and other um, pagan and Babylonian creation stories in that day. And here's what they said. They often portrayed work as something that was below the God's. They portrayed work as something that hum- humanity was created to kind of be like slaves to the gods who were connected to different parts of nature. And because the gods didn't want to get their hand dir- hands dirty and do work, they created humans. And that life for humans was fairly oppressive in doing work unless you could somehow get out of work and be more like the gods. But Genesis 1 and 2 goes toe-to-toe with those creation narratives and says they are a lie. That work is good because God is a worker. That, that the nature of, of, of humanity is to work. And when we're working, we're reflecting God's image. And that, that the world was meant to be cultivated by human hands because God made it that way. And so Genesis 1 and 2, when we open it up, the first thing it says, the first thing you get, the first impression that God makes about who he is to you is that he is a worker. And that's point number one. God is a productive worker. We may wonder if work is a godly activity, but the very first b- verse of the Bible says that it is because we see God s- working. Genesis 1 and 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say, In the beginning, God was chilling. It d- doesn't say, In the beginning, God. Looked over to someone else and said, you get to work. It says, in the beginning, God created. He, over six days, makes a masterpiece of the world. Day one, he creates light and darkness. Day two, the atmosphere and the oceans. Day three, land, water, and vegetation. Day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, avian life and aquatic life. Day six, the land animals and the crown of his creation, human beings who are made in his image. And then on the seventh day, he rests, not because he's done doing the bad stuff, not because he's tired, but to delight in the work of his hands. Our God is a worker, and he delights in this masterpiece that is both functional and beautiful. If you look at the verbs that are used in Genesis 1, they implicitly are verbs of working. It says God creates, he speaks, he hovers, he separates, commands, he, he makes. In verse 6, it uses the word of fashioning. And so what we see is also that God explicitly, the scripture explicitly says that God is working. If you look at Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, you'll see a, a phrase repeated several times. And in scripture, when you see a phrase repeated, it's not just because the writer is like getting distracted by you know, a three-year-old kid asking for juice, and then they just keep writing the same sentence over and over again, but they, they repeat things for the sake of emphasis. So Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3 says this, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he had rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God Blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. It is emphasizing over and over again using this phrase, His work, which would have been scandalous in that day to suggest that there is a God who gets His hands dirty. And that, my friends, is the God that we worship. Tim Keller says this. He says, in the beginning, God worked. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later, or something human beings were created to do, but that was beneath God Himself. No, God worked for the sheer joy of it. Work could not have had a more exalted inauguration. Work didn't come after sin entered the world, work came with God, and it had an exalted inauguration. But the question is, what kind of worker is God? When we look into Genesis 1, what do we see him doing? Well, we see that God is the great architect who perfectly crafted the world with both function and beauty. He's the great construction worker who doesn't just stand from a distance, but gets his hands dirty and actually makes stuff. God is the interior designer who created the full spectrum of colors and painted them across mountains and skies and flowers and people. He's the great auditor and quality control manager who looks over all of creation and declares it is good. He's the great entrepreneur whose enterprise called creation is sustainable and constantly creating more value. Before Steve Jobs ever made an Apple product, God made an actual Apple. Before Elon Musk started making green technology that was sustainable and solar, God made this little technology. You may have heard of it. It's called the sun, and it's kind of a big deal. God is the farmer before all farmers whose work is behind every morsel of steak or lasagna or delicious-tasting food you've had. God is the great landscaper who not only fills the world with evergreen trees, but arranges them and and organizes them and the rest of the, the vegetative life to make the world beautiful and delightful. God is the great pioneer of the hospitality industry. And though he didn't go to the, the hospitality school over at NAU, his work is good because he created a place of perfect human flourishing in the creation of the world, welcoming us in. He's the great administrative assistant who, not, he, doesn't, he doesn't keep our calendar, but he's the God who, in ordering the sun and the moon, made our calendar to work. He's the ultimate manager who didn't just make things and leave them alone but constantly watches over them as the spirit hovers over the face of the earth. And beyond Genesis 1 and 2, throughout the whole Bible, we see that God is a worker. He's the great security guard who protects his people. He's the doctor who heals us, the nurse who comforts us, the maintenance man who sustains the earth, the server who washes our feet. The teacher who's the source of all knowledge and the general contractor who will one day renew and restore all that's broken in creation. Our God is glorious and he's majestic and he's good and in all of that he is a worker. Now this is really important for us to feel the weight of our glorious God and his wonderful work. Because as we make career decisions, as many people in this room are, deciding what they're going to do for the rest of your life, or reflect on our current work and engage in our current work now, there's a temptation that comes from, it would have to be a whole other sermon where it comes from, but there's this sacred, secular divide that says spiritual things are really important, but social and physical things are less important. There's a temptation to believe that. And that, my friends, is a lie. And to believe that and to let that shape your, your mentality in how you approach work is an insult to God. Because he works in the spiritual, the physical, and the social realm. And his work is good. And that gives you freedom to engage in a whole number of vocations and occupations to to reflect his image throughout the world. So why why does work matter? Because God is a productive worker. Point number two, we are created to work. We are created to work. If you look at us, look at what we can do as humans— and look at the nature of the creation, you would say that these people, these image bearers, were made for a specific purpose, which is to work. But before God ever gives a commission to us and tells us to do something, he gives us a unique identity that's unique and distinct from all the rest of creation. It's the identity of an image bearer. Genesis 1, through 28, if you have your Bibles, look at that. It says this. When God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and then let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing on the earth, that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These verses here are what the theologians often refer to uh, as the, the cultural mandate. That God gives a mandate for humans to enter his world and to create and make culture, to draw the potential out of culture. The, the words uh, of subdue and have dominion, a lot of times we like to think of those words and we think we get uncomfortable with them. Because we think that it means just destroying the earth. We think that these rulership words are words that bring to mind hostile Rulers like like Genghis Khan or like Stalin or something like that. But being made in the image of God, dominion and subdue are words of of caring for and drawing the potential that God has hidden in the world. And he calls them to work. But before he ever... but, But what's crucial to them working is their unique identity as image bearers. Now, what does it mean to be an image bearer? It means that in some way... We share attributes with God. God is creative, and He made humans to be creative. He is wise, and He made humans to be wise. We are not little gods. We're not gods. But we're not like the rest of creation either, in that we are uniquely made after the imprint of God to display what He is like. In other words, God put little mirrors in the world of humans. Where we engage in our activity, we show the world, we show the cosmos what God is like. We are called to reflect what He is like and who He is. It's like God putting His self portrait in the world so that when you look at it, you see what God is like. Think about this for a moment. How does God display His glory to the world? God's invisible. You don't see God. How does he articulate who he is and what he's about to the rest of the world? He does it through the work of our hands, our work, our image-bearing work as humans. Humans are the snapshot that shows the world what God is like. So how does God, for instance, put his creativity on display. How do we even have a reference point for creativity? We have a reference point for creativity because of the good work that musicians do as they arrange chords. Or stay-at-home moms do as they, as they wisely um, create an imaginative, imaginative place for their children. How do we have any reference for God's faithfulness? Well, God puts his faithfulness on display through my friend Andy, who's worked in the same city, in the same neighborhood, in the same job for 28 years in a row. And he shows up day after day. And in that faithfulness, you see God's faithfulness. How does God show that he is a protector? Well, think about this. God shows his protective nature through the firemen that protect the forest's Around us, through those people at Gore, those engineers who I don't understand what they do, but what I've heard is that they make, that they, they make a certain material that keeps rain from coming into jackets. God displays his protective nature through the work of human hands. How does God display his knowledge? He displays his knowledge through good teachers and professors who've mastered their craft and are yet humble and really understand their their knowledge base well. Now think about that. If we as a church were known for that kind of work, we would show the nature of God to the rest of the world and the better work you do, the more of God you show, and there's an aesthetic quality to good work. When you see good craftsmanship or work well done, you lean in and you say, I want to know more about that. And before I said, evangelism will never be an, uh, work will never be an opportunity for evangelism until it's something more than an opportunity for evangelism. And if you know that you are performing the attributes of God to a world that will never read a systematic theology or maybe even the Bible, when they see that good work, they will lean in and ask questions. Let me tell you an example of that. So I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. That's a good thing that they let me up here, that I'm a Christian. But there was one guy whose work was so good that it made me almost want to, like, become a Christian again. Like, I wanted to hear the gospel again because he, his work was amazing. Let me tell you about this story. About two years ago, my wife and I bought a house. The, there was, uh, this house was great, but there was a problem with it. We started to notice that there was a crack in the ceiling. That's nev- never good news. And it was over the place where my daughter likes to play. So I thought I'd call someone, didn't think it was a big deal, but we'd bring them in. And we brought all these general contractors in, and they basically all said the same thing. They said, the person who sold you the house took out a load-bearing wall, didn't brace it correctly, and the whole weight of the house is on this little flimsy beam, and you are in danger. $7,000, please. (laughs) And we didn't know what to do. We kept calling general contractors, and finally there was a guy who came over. He looked at it. And he said, listen, I will not let you, um, I will not leave this house today without putting up a temporary wall. You are in danger. Your family's in danger. You do not have to pay me a dime. You do not have to hire me for this job. But I will not leave this house without putting up a temporary wall. I'm not asking you permission. I'm telling you, I cannot in good conscience leave this house with you being in danger. And I was dumbfounded. And he as he's building the wall, I start asking him questions. And it turns out this guy starts to talk to me about Jesus. And I ask him what church he goes to, and he goes to Redemption Gilbert. And, and this good work, the good work of his hands. If I didn't know Jesus, I would be intrigued about Jesus when I saw work like that. And what would it look like? If if all ten redemption congregations and the other churches in the city took our work seriously and reflected the creativity, the wisdom, the power, the the knowledge of God through the work of our hands, people would lean in and maybe never read a systematic theology, but would be able to glance the attributes of God through your work. So my question is, what does your work say about God? And this leads me to point number three. We are called to work. See, in six days, God created this masterpiece, this masterpiece of creation out of the overflow of his love, and he makes amazing things. He makes a mount, mountains and pine trees and all the, the various animals and the creeping things that creep on the ground, all kinds of awesome things. But there is something pretty brilliant, something that this passage says about our work, not based on what God creates, but based on what God doesn't create in Genesis 1 and 2. What what, what are some things that are left out of Genesis 1 and 2 that God doesn't create? Feel free to yell it out. Buildings. Buildings. Awesome. Here's one that comes to my mind. Omelets. Adam and Eve didn't show up and there were fully built houses and iPads and motorcycles and omelets already there for them with a fully populated world. No, Genesis 1 and 2 shows us a God who shows restraint and he doesn't make every person that would ever be made and he doesn't make everything that would ever be made but he he invites humans into his work of creation. In other words, he's saying put your hands into the dirt of this world and draw the potential out of it. God doesn't make omelets, but he ma- he hides the potential of the omelet in the chicken <laughs> and invites us to go cultivate his world and draw the potential out of it. People ask the silly question, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? It's a dumb question. Chicken came first. The right question is, should we use chives, bell peppers, what kind of cheese? Those are the questions that we should ask. And God puts the raw material, the potential of all the good things you ever experience, he hides it into creation and lovingly invites us to draw the potential out of it. Notice that in this passage, God calls every aspect of his creation good until humans come along. And then he says, it is very good. The work of humans moves creation from being good to very good. Eggs and chickens, good. Omelets, very good. Maple trees are good. Maple syrup is very good. Uh, Pine trees are good. But the the buildings that we make out of them are very good. Metals are good, but when in the hands of an architect or a contractor and they collaborate together, they make buildings that endure for centuries and it is very good. God didn't create houses and shovels and boats and bicycles, solar panels, the printing press, and the automobile in Genesis 1 and 2, but he waited until our hands were available to create through our hands. And in the work that you do, you are the hands of God to cultivate his world, to draw the potential out of it, and to care for it. James K.A. Smith says this, he says, When God calls creation into being, he announces that it's very good, but he doesn't announce that it's finished. Creation doesn't come into existence ready-made with schools, art museums, and farms. Those are all begging to be unpacked. But unfurling that potential is going to take work, and that work is the labor of culture, of cultivation, of unpacking. That's what we get to do, and he invites us into it. Now, that's the implicit dimension of Genesis 1, but it also gets very explicit in Genesis 2. Genesis 2.15 says this. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This talks about... The purpose for which God created humanity. He created us to be gardeners of his world. He created us to work. He makes this beautiful masterpiece, and he creates us to cultivate and draw the potential out of that masterpiece. There's two words here. There's the word, word abad, which is the word for work, and the word shamar, which is the word for keep. And these two words really give the connotation of the, the various aspects of work. Abad is more creative, and shamar is more sustaining and faithful. The word abad is an agricultural word that means to tend or to pr- prepare, essentially to cultivate like a plot of ground. Like if, if you had like a, a farm to abad, that ground would be to till it up and to plant a garden. And in abad, we see God affirming Creativity, not not just leaving the world the way it is, but rearranging it and making something great out of it. But then there's the word shamar. We live in a world that tends to glorify the creative class, the, the the creatives, but not necessarily those who are faithful, who stay in the same city and in the same job and keep doing the same work over and over. And that's really what the word shamar is about. It's about protecting, preserving, and maintaining. It's about the the faithful work of taking something that's good and keeping it good in a world where things fall apart. See, humans were created to take the potential that God embedded into the world and to cultivate it and care for it to reflect God's image and to serve our neighbors. So God has put us in the world as gardeners. And so my question for you, a question for you to reflect on is what is the garden the little plot of God's world that he has given you to steward and to care for. It belongs to God. Every inch of it belongs to him, and he's put you there to care for it. If you're a server at a restaurant, the 10 tables that are assigned to you are God's garden. All 10 of them belong to God, and you get to cultivate that space and care for that part of God's world for his glory. If you're a teacher— and on Tuesday, you you are going to school, and you look around your classroom, and you look at the students, know that that classroom and the mind of those students is God's garden that he has given you to tend and cultivate and care for. If you're a stay-at-home mom, that living room and the hearts of your children are your garden to cultivate. If you're a student... The textbook, when you open it up, whether you're studying biology or sustainability or whatever, you look at that textbook and that class and that knowledge is the garden God has given you to cultivate. So whether it's living rooms or waiting rooms, skyscrapers or scraped knees, a sound of a symphony or a jackhammer, God is the great king of creation. And he's commissioned us to be his gardeners in the world to work it and to keep it. And we must answer the question, what is our garden? So those three points, God is a productive worker. Number two, we were created to work. And number three, we were called to work. I want to leave you with this. One final thing. I know what many of you might be feeling and saying right now. You might be feeling, listen, man, that's all good, but you've never been to my job. You've never been at my house. You've never been at my work because my work is filled with back pain and annoying people and manipulative bosses, and it doesn't feel like very meaningful work. It doesn't feel like a garden, or if it is a garden, there's a lot of weeds in the garden and they keep poking me. And that's the reality of a fallen world that we live in. The next chapter of the Bible is Genesis 3, where it talks about the unraveling of the world because of sin. That the world is still good, and we are still image bearers, and we're still called to work within his world. But now there are thorns and thistles and pain, and work will be hard. I I had a weekend like this a few weeks ago. So um, uh, part of my vocation in life, what I feel God has called me to do, is to plant urban gardens. And I have one at the the church at Redemption Tempe. And we have one in my house. And I have had such a hard time with the one at my house. I thought I was going to be a good neighbor. And I put all of these um, raised bed gardens in my front yard so that I could grow food, serve my neighbors, be a blessing in the city. But one of my other neighbors has about 15 cats. And those 15 cats decided that I had set up the perfect bathroom system for them in my front yard so now instead of having raised bed gardens in my front yard I essentially have cat toilets in my front yard well I had laid rocks out because I heard that you don't want to waste water with with uh, growing grass and things and one of the sustainability majors comes up to me and says yeah that's worthless because the rocks contribute to the urban heat island so I my gardens failed my rocks failed so I let the grass grow up through the rocks a little bit. And my goal was to actually have grass in the front yard, but turns out my daughter, who's on the autism spectrum, really hates certain sounds, and the sound of the lawnmower and the trimmer, the weed whacker, is one of them. So I had to go out in all these obscure hours, and be honest, I had all kinds of weeds in my yard. With all of my good intentions, I come home one day, and I find a little note from the city that says, your yard looks like a slum, please fix it up. And I had all of these good intentions, and I guarantee you I had worked harder than any of my neighbors on my front yard, and yet I had created this little cat poop slum uh, for my neighbors. But I went to my backyard, and I thought, okay, at least, at least I still have chickens, and they're providing eggs and things like that. Well, while I was gone, while I'm still holding that little notice in my hand, I walked back, and the chickens had kicked shut the door to their coop, where the water was. And I came to find two chickens dead staring at their water from outside of the coop. And standing there with my dead chickens and my my little pink notice from the city, I realized work is hard, and it is not going well for me, even though I had the best of intentions. And this is the nature of the world we live in because of the fall and because of sin. And many of you are saying, I, I don't have Genesis 3 weekends. I have a Genesis 3 job. I just want to close with some good news to you, that we don't need common grace in this situation. What we need is the saving grace of Jesus. The work that he did on Friday on the cross and Sunday in the resurrection means everything for us on monday you see jesus is the second adam who is sufficient where the first adam and eve failed and he is that for the failed sons and daughters of adam and eve that you and i are jesus's words uttered to failed gardeners that his his yoke is easy and his burden is light on the cross jesus was crushed for everyone who's been crushed by the manipulative words of a boss Jesus' back was shredded by the whip of a Roman soldier for every person who comes home with back pain. And on the cross, Jesus was rejected on behalf of those who have to come home and tell their spouses that they still haven't been able to find a job, even though they keep putting in the applications. On the cross, Jesus was publicly shamed for those who've worked hard and yet have failed. And on the cross, Jesus was the su- sufficient payment for our sins, including our sins of creating products that harm people, of yelling at our children, of lying to our coworkers. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he was getting back for us what was lost in the Garden of Creation. And three days after the cross, he was resurrected, pointing to a future day when there will be no more futile work, where there will be no more thorns and thistles, but because of the work of Christ, he will restore all things and we will have an eternity of fruitfulness with him. You see, what Jesus did on the cross on Friday and what he did in the resurrection on Sunday means everything for you and your work on Monday. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for everyone in this room and the various types of work that they represent both the work that they get paid for that they're employed for uh, the work that they do in their home uh, the work that they do for the good of the city and God I pray that you would bless the work of their hands so that they would be a blessing but Lord let them be anchored in their identity as image bearers and not in their work but in your work and out of that, let them work well for, for, for your glory and the good of their neighbor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So right now we want you to take a moment and uh, spend some time praying and reflecting. And there will be a question up there uh, for you to reflect on. And essentially the question is, what aspect of God's work um, do you delight in most? What aspect of the work of Christ actually changes and impacts your work during the week. So those are two questions to pray and reflect on. And in a moment, Vince will come up and lead us in response.
0: In a number of ways, here. The first thing we do is we sing and we sing songs and light of these truths about God we just learned. The next thing we do is we give. We give of our tithes and our offering. There's an offering box at the top of those stairs, and there's another offering box at the top of these stairs. We give because we want to, fur- to further the mission of Jesus in this city. We also give